if we can turn to Luke chapter 1, we will be in a good place. <clears throat> hopefully I won't need this too much, and hopefully you won't be too distracted by throat clearing, so all that fun stuff. Let's pick up in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered or marveled. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will, be this, will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures which you have given us by the Spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son. We ask that you would make them profitable to us, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Make us mature, equipped for good works as we study the scriptures in your presence this morning. Through Christ we ask. Amen. When I was uh, in college, so many, 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 many years ago, um, <clears throat> I, I think I had ar I'd already become a Christian at this point in time, because I think the year was 1986. Uh, but I remember being in my dorm room and having the, ra the local rock radio station on, and there was this group I had never heard of before called The Call. And the song that was very popular at that point in time was one called, I Still Believe, Grand Design. 
As I read this passage and thought about it, that is the, the thing that came to mind to me this week. And I'm going to read a little bit of it, so maybe you'll understand why. I've been in a cave for 40 days, only a spark to light my way. I want to give out. I want to give in. This is our crime. This is our sin. But I still believe, I still believe, through the pain and through the grief, through the lives, through the storms, through the cries, and through the wars. Oh, I still believe. A little more. Um, Flat on my back, out at sea, hoping these waves don't cover me. I'm turned and tossed upon the waves. When the darkness comes, I feel the grave. So, it goes on longer, but the idea here is a person who is under great trial, great tribulation, and yet he is confident in this, that there is a God, and this God will save him. He still believes the promises. He still believes that there is a grand design in what is going on in his life. He is not overcome by his circumstances. How does that fit? I thought for Zechariah. Here is a man who, because of his unbelief in a moment, okay, was struck deaf, not deaf, uh, mute, although the word in, this, in the, uh, the Greek can mean both deaf and mute. But he's unable to speak for nine months. What wouldn't most of us be bitter? be hardened, be angry. And yet, he basically says, in response to all that takes place, I still believe. There is a plan, and it is unfolding at this very time. So Isaiah, Zechariah, rather, still believes. The big idea this morning is that God declares and fulfills his redemptive plan for people by people. And I'm going to explain. There's a lot of people that's going to be in this uh, sermon this morning because that's what I was sort of struck by as I read it as well, the other thing I was struck by. And so the first part of the four parts, not a three-pointer today, we got four points, but they won't be as long, is that God keeps the plan he declared to his people. Part of Luke's point in recounting the prophecy of Zechariah and this, this whole thing here is that the God of Israel is now coming to keep his promises. And it unfolds here with the birth of, his ch- of this child. And what is unusual here is that usually we see that the child is named at birth, but they're going to try and name this child, well, at least the, the relatives are, at the circumcision, which was eight days later. There's no other place in Scripture that we see uh, that this practice would be taking place. And perhaps it was that the relatives, recognizing that Zechariah could not speak, decided to, you know, sort of swoop in and take care of things, sort of like uh, an unhealthy, dysfunctional family, you know, just swooping in at the last minute and taking over when they should rely uh, or, or trust that those who are responsible can fulfill their responsibilities. As we think, as we look at the the general um, practices of the cultures of those day, when children were named in Rome, we see it's on the ninth day. Greece, it was either the seventh or the eighth. uh, Sorry, the tenth day. So this practice is very strange, and so when they try to take over, and and it's 
sort of amusing in some sense, because after she says no, the child's name is John, they, they turn their attention to Zechariah, but they act like he's completely out of his mind because they use gestures. They act like he can't hear. And so he asks for a simple writing tablet. And yes, they had those in, that, in those days. A piece of wood with some wax on it, and you could impress it with you know the wax, and boom. And apparently, he had used something like this for the nine months because his wife was completely clued in as to the fact that this child's name was supposed to be John. Not Zachariah, not anything else. John. The keeping of the covenant is revealed here. As, as Zechariah begins to prophesy in the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he brings up the idea that God has to remember his holy covenant. We see, you know, keeping in mind, he is a Hebrew. He's speaking throughout this whole thing. He's bringing lots of Old Testament texts to bear. And one of those things, that these ideas that is coming up, is he's thinking of Exodus, particularly when he speaks a little bit later. But the idea of, of visiting, okay? God is coming. He's remembering his holy covenant. He's going to act now. That's the whole idea with remembering, is that God's... Now is the time for God to come and to visit, to act. To re- He's remembering his holy covenant. Salvation is covenantal in nature. Okay, We can't escape this sort of notion. We try to avoid this kind of notion. And what I mean by that is that God is fulfilling Covenant promises. He made these covenants with his people in the past. He regulates the relationship uh, with these people by these covenants. These covenants reveal how these people are to come to him, what they are to do in light of coming to him, and what he promises to do for them. God is going is about to do those for them things. He's keeping his end of the promise of the covenant in the birth, not just of John, but the birth of Jesus. So he's going to keep these promises. We're so used to important people not keeping their promises. What's just started? Election cycle. Aren't we just sort of used to this whole thing? Doesn't matter what party they're from. We're just used to politicians making all kinds of promises, most of which they couldn't keep anyway. <laughs> and yet, they want us to vote for them on the basis of these promises, and they want us to keep voting for them despite the fact they don't keep those promises. God is not like those people. He is faithful and keeps every promise that he makes. The Apostle Paul stresses this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. And so God is now at work remembering his holy covenant. Okay? This new covenant would probably be better called a renewed covenant because it's, it's connected to everything that came before. It's connected to the covenants that came before. It's not that God is erasing the board and starting all over. He's not doing something completely different. He's fulfilling that which was before in the new. And so there is a a fundamental structure that is the same between the old covenant and the new, although there are differences in detail. 
So in addition to the idea of the covenant, uh, Zechariah says the oath. He's remembering the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. He gets even more specific. All of this goes all the way back to the promise that was given in the covenant made to Abraham. God is beginning to fulfill it. The seed has arrived through whom all the nations will be blessed. God moves slow, but he moves sure, and he is reliable. And so God made covenants to shape our relationship to him, and God is now keeping this relationship in his son. So let's move into the second part of this, that God declared his plan to save his people through people, meaning he declared it through people. Okay? He did not just speak directly as he, as he spoke to Abraham, but he also spoke indirectly or through the prophets. Zechariah brings this up as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And so the prophets were not speaking on their own authority. They were not speaking their own words, but God was speaking through those prophets to his people. We've got to get this. This is fundamental to understanding the gospel promises. It's not something that man has contrived. It's not something that people have made up. You know, this sounds like a good idea. Let's do this. But it's something that God himself has spoken through his servants, the prophets. This great redemptive event that's beginning to take place with the birth of John was a topic of the prophets. We've seen Malachi brought into this discussion We see (coughs) Isaiah is brought in. There are a lot of allusions to Isaiah 9, which is why we read it earlier in the worship service this morning. And there are other prophets. They're all speaking about this thing that is about to take place. But it's not just those prophets, because we see what happens. Zechariah himself, the text says, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. The priest becomes a prophet because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He joins the other prophets. And this gets back to the idea that they spoke in the power of the Spirit. This is how God spoke through them, in the power of the Spirit. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 21. You can go write it down, look back at it later. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This ties into our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, the, the idea that though men wrote this book, They wrote it under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and so it is inspired. It is spoken by God. God speaks through them. This is not, you know, they're robots and just writing Scripture out. Okay, Their personality is involved. They're fully engaged with this thing. But God speaks. God moves them. He carries them along by the Holy Spirit. This is not 
something that they concocted on their own initiative. In other words, where there is no Holy Spirit, there is no true prophecy. If there were no Spirit, there would be no prophecy. We would not have the Scriptures. And so, as Zechariah himself is carried along by the Holy Spirit, one of the things he says is that his own son, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High. In his prophecy, he declares his son will be a prophet. Sort of interesting. That he will be filled, that John himself will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see that as it gets, as it moves out of the, the prophecy of Zechariah, the song of Zechariah, and moves into the, the prose that takes place. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. I don't know why they put a lowercase s there. Because I'm pretty sure from the context, that's supposed to be an uppercase s, meaning the Holy Spirit. This John became powerful in the Holy Spirit because he had a public ministry that he was going to fulfill. And part of that, whole, that public ministry was to give knowledge of salvation to God's people. He is filled with the Spirit for a specific purpose so that they might know how he is going to save them. Did I say that right? Yeah, they might know how he is going to save them. Good. We're all right. Okay, so you know, in our day and age, we're we're very used to um, public addresses, press conferences, you know, the radio address. For those of you who FBR, FDR and his fireside chats and all that kind of stuff, we're we're kind of used to that fairly impersonal way of doing this. But but this is what God does. This is before that kind of technology. He, you know, there's no Twitter. Okay, there's no Facebook to put the status on. God sends an envoy. And this person is charged with saying exactly what God tells them to say. No spin, no personal asides, what God wants them to declare. That's what John's supposed to do. He comes as a person to people, to interact with them, to let them know the, the, what God is about to do, to let them know that God is acting in that day, at that time, to save His people. So as we step back from the text and think about what, what is part of Luke's point here, as we, as we look not just at this gospel, but also Acts, which bears His name, we see that this, this repeatedly we see that God sends spirit filled people to speak to non spirit filled people. To let them know of what God has done. And, God, and Luke is setting out this pattern for us. Okay? It's God's plan that He fills people who believe in Christ with His Spirit that they may testify or bear witness to what God has done in His Son. We see this in Acts chapter 1, the very beginning, Jesus speaking in verse 8. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, he speaks that to the apostles. But did it stop with the apostles? Are they the only ones who were to bear witness to the reality of Jesus Christ? Yes, they're the only ones who give us scripture. The Spirit comes upon us too. Just as Peter declares in, I didn't put this thing down, but in his first sermon at Pentecost. He quotes from Joel chapter 2, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. It didn't stop on the day of Pentecost. Okay? It continues. Now, whether or not we expect to see tongues of fire on people's heads, completely different story. Don't expect that, okay? Some supernatural things occurred in, in, in light of a shift in event. Um, but, where am I thinking? Um, yes. And Peter said to them, they're asking, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that's supposed to take place when we receive that power from the Holy Spirit is that we're supposed to be witnesses of what God has done. And we also speak not just to those who don't have the Spirit, but we speak to one another who have the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. How does Paul explain that? That you will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You will be singing and making melody in the Lord to your heart. And so there's, there's worship that's taking place, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, pro, the production of gratitude in our hearts is what the Spirit does. Not only that, but submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so submission is really a function of being filled with the Spirit. And when you refuse to submit to legitimate authority, you're not acting as one who is filled with God's Spirit. You're resisting the Spirit. Something we talked about yesterday morning. So, that wasn't a very short point, was it? Nonetheless, we see that the personal God uses people, personal means, to let people know about salvation. The third thing is that God keeps the plan to redeem through a person. Zechariah alludes to the Exodus, as I mentioned before, when he speaks about this, this coming redemption, because he speaks either in the past tense or the prophetic past. It's hard, you know, grammatically it's past. Is he speaking as, in the, as a prophet, meaning it's as good as done, or is he referring back to the Exodus itself explicitly, or is he just alluding to it? For his audience, but we see that this this word of God visited and redeemed his people. God showed up and he freed them from the power and the tyranny of Egypt. The same God is about to show up fifteen hundred years later in Jerusalem to set his people free. 
Back then he redeemed them by the blood of the lamb, which was to be put on the doorpost. And so God would pass over in judgment and the firstborn of that family would not be killed. So he redeemed them by the blood of these lambs. Zechariah goes farther. He brings up, again, talking about Isaiah. He brings in Isaiah here. He talks about that you have raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the past, God provided a king by the name of David to defeat the Canaanites and to set them free, the Israelites free from the oppression of the Canaanites. God is about to bring another horn of salvation, another strong salvation in a son of David. The prophets look forward to this son of David to come and to lead them. And that's part of what we read about in Isaiah 9 this morning. The government shall be upon his shoulders. But lest they understand this in purely political ways, he goes on to say that this is about the forgiveness of their sins. This, this deliverance is not about being free from the power of Rome. That's not what God is about to do. It's going to be free from the power of sin, which is a far greater tyrant than Rome could ever be. To accomplish this, God is going to send his own firstborn son, who is the Davidic king, who will be the lamb slain to remove the guilt of his people. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. The gospel of our God, and notice the connections here, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, Paul, again, just like Luke, This was all talked about before. God promised this uh, in the Scriptures. It concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul needs to remind the people of Rome that according to his earthly lineage, Jesus was of the line of David and had a right to the throne, and he sits upon it now. God didn't send us a law book to save us. Do these 16 things and you'll be okay. He didn't send us a philosophy like Taoism. Think this way and it will be okay. You will enter into enlightenment and it will all be good. Okay? That's not how he saved us. Not through knowledge itself. Not through obedience to some moral code. He sent his son, a person, to die to save us. That's how Christianity is so different than any other philosophy or religion in the world. It is not about how what you can do to be saved or what you need to think to be saved. You know, I heard on the radio affirmation chimes yesterday. I'm like, what in the world's an affirmation chime? Um, but God sent a son to save a people for himself. A son to die 
So salvation is not following a philosophy. It's not performing good works. Salvation is Jesus. Fourth, God fulfills His plan so that people serve Him. As great as the forgiveness of sin is, it was not the ultimate goal. There's more that God has going on. There's more in this plan. Because those who were freed from guilt and condemnation now were meant to serve their Savior and King. He's alluding back to Israel. What happened? When God redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt, did He just say, go have a good time? Go find a place. He said, I got a place for you to live. I'm going to give you a place to worship me. And I'm going to show you how to live in my service. The Mosaic administration of the covenant came to show them what it meant to, to be his people. It was never intended to save them. Okay, That had already been done. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Okay? They've already been redeemed, but he gives them a covenant to, so they understand their responsibilities as his redeemed people. Zechariah is reminding us of that. We, now, we who have been redeemed because we trust in Jesus Christ now live responsibly as God's people. He set us free precisely so that we would love Him and serve Him. But He, he qualifies this. He goes, first of all, without fear. At the end of, of Exodus 20, it talks about how the people did not want to hear the voice of God anymore because they were afraid. And so they said, Please, may he talk to you, Moses, and you talk to us. They were afraid. They were still afraid of God. Not in the, the reverence aspect of fear, but in the quaking in the boots aspect of fear. The wanting to run and hide kind of fear. We still have the reverence fear that's talked about repeatedly in the New Testament. But we are, to be, we are to be set free from the quaking in the boots, wanting to run and hide kind of fear. And that's exactly what Zechariah is talking about. We don't need to fear God anymore precisely because of Christ's work. This is very important because every one of you, okay, I'll say most of you because some of you are three, okay? <laughs> The rest of us have skeletons in the closet, don't we? And some of those skeletons are from before we knew Jesus, but some of them are from after we knew Jesus. Okay? And if we think of our skeletons, we're afraid. We want to run. We want to hide. That's part of what John was talking about in his first letter, chapter 4. 
But there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John goes on to say, this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. God is the one with the perfect love. We don't need to be afraid of him anymore. That perfect love should, should, be, should cast out our fear because the punishment that we deserved, as Isaiah 53 talks about, was placed on him. Yeah, there's discipline, but that's different than this because that's condemnation. We don't need to be afraid of being kicked out, rejected, destroyed. Okay? The prophet sinned. Just think about that. Why was Zechariah mute? The sin of unbelief. Think of, think of Elijah and his own sin. You know, he, he, had, he suffered at times from the fear of man. The same one who stood up, okay, against the king and against his wife and all the prophets of Baal ran and hid from his life because of Jezebel. The fear of man. And he was depressed in the wilderness. Sinners just like us. In need of the grace of Jesus Christ, just like us. Okay? So part of what this says to us, or part of what we need to walk away with, is that our justification, the, the fact that God declares us to be righteous, not because of our own goodness, but because of the obedience of His Son, must be the foundation for our obedience and our service to God. Otherwise, our obedience and service is trying to gain God's favor. But when they rest upon justification, it means we already have God's favor. And now we're walking in light of it. As opposed to trying to earn it. And that's very different. The child who knows their parent loves them acts very differently from the one who's trying to gain love from their parents. Haven't you seen that? The kid who desperately wants to know his parents love him or her, who strives to gain approval through a performance and achievement and all of these things. You've seen that. Maybe you've been that. But Christ has won the approval for us. And we serve him out of love for it, out of faith because of it. So the first part is without fear. The second part is in holiness and righteousness before him. Jesus came not just so that you would be declared righteous, but so after that he would make you righteous. He sets you apart as his very own, which is part of the idea of holiness. 
the, the set-apartness, just as Israel was to be set apart from the nations, so the church is set apart from the nations. We are to be a distinctive, separate, different kind of people. We are to serve Him out of this differentness, this strangeness, but also righteousness. Character and actions that reflect the character of God, who is righteous. And so, Zechariah is reminding us that all who truly trust in Christ are set apart to God and growing in their obedience. This is about sanctification. Peter picks up on this in his first letter, first chapter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so live in light of what the future, the return of Jesus. But he also points to the past as obedient children. Okay, there's our adoption, but the fact that we're supposed to be obedient. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Stop living like you used to live before the grace of God came to you. Do not live like those who know nothing of Jesus Christ and His grace. But, verse 15, as, though, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's not a mere moral code. It's being made like God in his character, not his attributes. You're not going to become infinite, eternal, unchanging. We're not Mormons here, okay? But we're to become like him. So, yeah, I'm about done. Are we living like we're his? Or are we living like we're our own? Are we obeying our own will and agenda? Or are we beginning to obey His will and agenda? In other words, are you bearing the marks of one who has been redeemed by grace or not? Do you just have your get-out-of-hell card free? Get a hell free card. Okay? Or do you have a biblical salvation? That Jesus came not just to rescue you, but to change you. So God's plan of salvation is all about people. He keeps his covenant promises to people to save those people. But he saves them through a person, his own son, Jesus, who came to, gave us, to give us new life, not just to kind of erase the mistakes of the past. We are freed from the tyrants of self, sin, Satan, and death. And now we can freely serve him without fear, pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, because we are accepted by God through Christ. And so if you're still running to gain God's approval, stop. 
and believe that Jesus has done it. If you're still performing, stop. You don't need to perform anymore. Christ has done it. However, if you're not serving out of love and faith, now is the time to start. That's part of why Christ came for you. Let's pray. Father, the message of, uh, of Christmas is um, we like parts of it. And those are the ones we tend to focus on, the ones that uh, the sentimental, warm, fuzzy thingies. But I thank you that your word gives us the, the real import of what happened in the incarnation, what it offers us, as well as what it calls forth from us. And Father, we're not for Jesus and the Spirit who comes to empower. We would be crushed by this as just another moral demand upon us. But help us to hear this in light of Christ and His coming and His substitutionary death for us and in light of the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey. We are not alone. And so, as you call us to greater faithfulness, remind us of what you have done so that we might be faithful. Help us to hear that. Lest we become overcome with despair and a sense of condemnation. I ask this in the name of Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins. Amen.